Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now, a new content partner to the newbridgedetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we are happy to welcome Tawana Petty of the Detroit Community Technology Project. Tawana is a mother, social justice organizer, youth advocate, poet, and author. She is intricately involved in water rights organizing, data and digital privacy rights, education, racial justice, and equity work. Tawana, finally, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you. It's been a long time coming, so hopefully we can make this a regular thing. We have like a suite of unofficial co-hosts. Hopefully you'll fall into that, that category. <laughs> Certainly a lot going on in the world, guys. How was your weekends? How are you? Donna, how are you? How was your weekend? It was good. It was really good. I um, got a chance to um, hang out on the last day on my sister and brother-in-law's boat with my granddaughter, Luna. And anytime I spend with Luna is a great day because I never knew how much fun I would have had being a grandmother. I, I've heard other people say being a grandmother is the best thing in the world. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah. And now that I am, it's like, oh my goodness. So yeah, it was good. It was a lot of fun. I tell you who large and in charge. You understand me? Luna. Tawana, if you had been at Donna's wedding, you would have seen Luna <laughs> say, I don't care about what's going on with grandma and her getting married. This is my time. This is my <laughs> show. And I'm going to act as such. She is so cute. <laughs> you know, and it's special because Luna is... Um, was born with some health issues. And so um, when she was about seven months old, she had open heart surgery and she was a frail child. And there is absolutely nothing frail about her. It is like when um, she had her heart repaired, she just came out. And um, so yeah, I get teary eyed just thinking about it, but yeah, that's my heart. Um, absolutely my heart. And good. the heart of everybody around us. I mean, she has so much spunk and so much energy and just loves to try new things. And I could go on and on and on and say that I have the perfect granddaughter, but I'm sure everybody thinks their grandchildren are perfect. <laughs> she is perfect. I, I'll, I'll never forget the first time that I met her. She came right to me. She was like at home. I'm like, look at the baby. And she smiled. And at that time she was not doing a whole lot of smiling. But when she saw Orlando, she smiled. I was like, oh, you think you're something, don't you Orlando? Getting smiling, kind of a smiling child. <laughs> I would like pay for a smile at that point. <laughs> special, but at that point, you had to be somebody to get a smile. That's <laughs> so right. Orlando. Uh, I connected with Luna. Tawana, how are you? How was your weekend? Do anything fun? I'm I'm doing good. I had a good weekend as well. I went to the farmers market and got. I bought up almost all the green tomatoes. So. I've been on kind of like a fried green tomatoes uh, kick the last couple of days. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, that's one of my faves right there. So um, I had a pretty decent weekend. Yeah, I remember that movie, Fried Green Tomatoes. Who was that? Kathy Bates? Yeah. 
Yeah. I like that movie. I do too. <laughs> I like Kathy Bates. I think she's a, a goddess. I think she's excellent, an excellent actress. Y'all, was that the movie where she said Tawanda? Uh, I don't remember. It's, uh, it's either that or Steel Magnolias. I think it was Steel Magnolias when she said that. Okay. okay. Wasn't she in that? Okay, I'm. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to get my name claimed up in here. You know, I couldn't remember which movie. <laughs> I um, I you know, so I'm back on the podcast. I missed last week. I was on vacation all weekend. And let me tell you, I did nothing. I did nothing. Uh, but lay around and did whatever I wanted to do. Um, you all should know that uh, a ton of friends, both male and female, pressured me into watching Girlfriends on Netflix. And so I'm addicted. I never watched it. I never oh, watched it when it was on the air. My toxic masculine, teenage masculinity would not allow me to watch Girlfriends. It's like, this ain't for me. It's Girlfriends. I'm not watching that, whatever. <laughs> Uh, but watching it now and seeing that they're at the age that I'm currently at and their experience, I'm like, oh my God, this is so crazy and relatable and how they were really, you know, leading in on, you know, some convert leading and leaning in on some conversations that are now just regular, you know, from natural hair to uh, conversations about Black people going to therapy. I mean, just just interesting. All the relationship dynamics that they expose. I've been I've been um, binging on girlfriends too, um, <laughs> and so yeah. One of the great things is I've been doing it, and Camille's been doing it. So um, Luna does know the theme song to Girlfriends. <laughs> and that's one theme song that I don't skip through. Like I let it play. It's so classic. I'm like Angie Stone killed that. That's Angie Stone. Did you know that? Oh wow! You know how much I love Angie Stone. She was on one of the episodes, wasn't she? She was the publicist on one of the episodes. I'm like, look yeah. at Angie Stone. <laughs> Everybody's on there. I'm like, wait a minute. I had no idea that Kelly was on there. From um, have you gotten to that part? From Destiny's Child, Kelly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm there. She yeah, was, I was like, oh, oh man, she there. was foul, Donna. Oh, she was foul. I'm like, man, yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, so I've been watching that. that. Also draws, I draw a parallel between Joan and Tony and Issa and Molly, and I can see the extent to which girlfriends contributed to current art, you know? Well, you should know that Larry Wilmore is an executive producer on Girlfriend and the co-creator of Insecure. And right. so there is, I see, it can sense that level of continuity in it. And Larry Wilmore loves to let Issa Rae take all the credit and spotlight and talk about it, but he is literally the co-creator uh, of the show. You know, benefits. next up, Living Single. I'm just going to go back and I'm watching all the black TV it's sitcoms easy. I didn't watch when I had kids and I was little 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 at time. Now I have time to watch all the old stuff. So what about you? Have you watched any of those shows, Twana? Yeah, I've, I, I got to dip back into Girlfriends, but I've been binge watching Moesha. Ooh. <laughs> 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 I will tell you, I, and I, I was like, wait, I don't like Moesha on here. I, I, I liked her growing up. I was like, that told me something about myself. <laughs> I was I, watching I, the episode. You know, 
I didn't like Melissa back then <laughs> as a person. And I just, I decided not to, to engage in the show. But I did watch, I benched Sister Sister. Cause that's the show. Oh Jack, yeah. Jackie, Harry, Jackie, Harry. Yeah. She, that was yeah. her show. Like that's Jackie. And 227. I was, I've been watching 227 too. Yeah. And so I've been watching I haven't seen it yet. I haven't love seen it. Oh, Lovecraft Country. Oh my goodness. You will love it. Yes. Think how you'll feel. But I predict you will love it because okay. it is just everything. That show is poetic. And since you are a poet, I know <laughs> you will love it. There's some lines in there that are just so magical. Um, yeah, so I, I heavily encourage you to watch it, especially it just gets better every episode to me is better than the last one. Um, but the way it delves into our history and our identities is just crazy to me. It's like an amalgamation of so many genres, Tawana. You have period piece, you got noir, you got horror, you have suspense, you have sci-fi. You have wow. all of the things, all of the things. Um, and it all being personified through this very black cast, this black, mm -hmm. And it's so good. I watched it. Did you see the latest episode, Donna? I'm mm -hmm. I'm stressed and I was oh, emotional. Right. Yeah. It's so good. So you you have to catch it. It's, yeah. It comes on HBO, Tawana. I got to log in if you need it because that's how. I <laughs> you can say that. I'm definitely gonna podcast. check it out. That is just humor, haha, <laughs> Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, it's time for Press Off the Press, news that we are thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Donna, Fresh Off the Press. Amid COVID, Detroit imagines a master plan for its public parks by Anna Clark, um, published yesterday on Bridge Detroit Magazine or Bridge Detroit newspaper. I'm not sure which it Just is. Bridge Detroit. Um, Just Bridge Detroit. Okay, I'm sorry. Bridge Detroit, making it too long. Um, it's a, a, an article that really details the um, importance of public parks in our um, community period. The fact that we need to invest more in our public parks and also that they have never become more, been more important than they are right now. We need safe places to go outdoors. So it highlights some of the parks, um, starting with the Viola, Viola Leosa Park. I always get that name, last name wrong. Um, and the installations there, the green infrastructure that's in some places, and just the fact that schools and community groups and young people are dependent on the parks for their social life. So I think it's an important story. I think that um, revisiting the gyms inside of our community and doing something with our parks is important something other than um, those boulders that they decided to put around all of our parks a few years ago and call that park improvement. I'm happy to see the city have a um, approach. And anytime the city has a master plan to public amenities, all of them not based on what neighborhood you're in, but just we have a master plan for public amenities. I think that's the right direction for the city to move in. I, I do too. And, you know, especially when I think about uh, the parks that we frequent on the east side, be it Chandler Park, Abelfour Park, uh, Balduck Park, you know, these beautiful east side parks. It, it gives me comfort to know that the folks in City Hall are number one, thinking about 
putting people to work to take care of these parks in a, in a real equitable and sustainable way. But number two, uh, just figuring out how to uh, manage the need for recreation while also uh, making the land productive. Uh, Chandler Park has been uh, leading in that when we talk about sustainability uh, with its conservation campus. And I think that overall the city of Detroit is looking at ways and mechanisms to manage our land better and our water better. In these Detroit places. has an abundance of vacancy. And um, I think, I hope it goes farther than um, figuring out what to do with existing parks and moves into the area of what to do um, in places where residents have um, bundled vacant land to create something new. In the McDougal Hunt neighborhood, you have the Bailey Park project and the East Canfield neighborhood, I think um, it is called the West End on the east side. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but you have Brewer Park and you have um, resident driven organizations, East Canfield Consortium and the Bailey Park Neighborhood Development Corporation that were formed by residents who want to change their communities creating these parks. My concern is that unless the city is creating a greenway, they're not willing to invest and commit to new parks being formed by residents. And I hope that changes because we have so much vacancy and I can't think of a better use of vacancy than new park space that residents maintain. And I think there's an opportunity for um, advocacy on part of residents who have started these public spaces. Uh, the article in Bridge also highlights uh, the planned closure of so many of our beautiful parks that are gyms and neighborhoods that was the impetus to form many uh, conservancies like Friends of Rouge Park, the Chandler Park Promise Coalition, which is now the Chandler Park Conservancy to advocate for the city to keep uh, these parks open and maintain. I do think that there is room and an opportunity for residents while we are you know, experience going through a master planning process for for their parks, their creation to be included. I mean, isn't that what equity is? Isn't that what inclusion is? When you demolish, is it 21,000 homes that we are um, now and counting that we're bragging about demolishing? That's 21,000 vacant spaces. In almost every instance, that land is still vacant. And so we want, one of the things that Eastside Community Network does is we encourage people to come up with productive reuses of vacant space. And now the city wants to demolish at least 8,000 more structures, bringing that to about 30,000 total vacant um, parcels. So we're going to need a mix of responses, hopefully a whole lot of affordable housing, um, hopefully more housing being built and developed than torn down because we have a housing need in our community that is unreal. But also, you know, parks, urban gardens, other things that we're gonna need the city and other policymakers to help find ways to expedite um, reuses of vacant land. Yeah. It's one thing to put it in a book and say, here's some things you can possibly do. And it's another thing to make it possible to put some resources behind it, to change zoning and also to change um, some of the rules and restrictions you have on the use of land so that we can get more people doing that with it. Can you have too many parks is the question. If, Local people are willing to maintain them, mow them, decorate them, all of that. Can you have too many? Yeah. I, can, can we tip our hat to uh, Brad Dick, who uh, has been at, the, at Parks and Recreation, I think, since 2003, and who has been uh, a very visible and responsive leader when it comes to 
uh, our concerns about our parks. I know he tries to be, and he's been a tremendous partner, I know, to uh, Donna and the rest of the Channel Park Conservancy Board, as well as other, um, other groups, other uh, conservancies and friends of parks around, around the city. I think this is the step in the right direction. Tawana, do you have anything to add? Well, you know, I'm, I want to shamelessly plug the Detroiters Bill of Rights, which um, is trying to amend the city charter uh, with a right to re recreation, which would ensure that, you know, children, elderly uh, people, uh, women, people with disabilities are, are you know, uh, met with safe, accessible urban green spaces. So yeah, wanting to um, just ensure that any adoption of that type of expansion uh, is thinking about those things. Like if you think about a lot of parks, are they really accessible to folks with wheelchairs or, uh, you know, other disabilities? Um, and, and so, yeah, thinking that it's just really important that the charter, like Donna was saying, that we have some policy um, that is put in place that prevents us from being in a space where we have to be imagining parks in our community. Um, and so, yeah, so hoping the Detroiters Bill of Rights succeeds in that. And, and we signed on to it and I, I participated in a couple of conversations. I was actually invited by Tawana. So I wanna thank Tawana for the invitation. I'm really, really excited about the Bill of Rights. I think it needs more recognition. Maybe we can expand on the, uh, that a little bit after this, um, what's in the news segment. Orlando, what do you have? All right, uh, fresh off the press. Uh, Governor Whitmer signs Clean Slate Michigan allowing automatic felony, ex felony expungement. That is by Riley Began in partnership with uh, Bridge Michigan. Um, this of course is a long time coming hot button issue as it relates to this slate of bills that she signed of course is expungement for marijuana related expenses now that recreational marijuana is legal in the state of Michigan. Uh, it was one of her campaign promises, but what um, what it does is it sets um, you know uh, some boundaries or parameters around expungement for small misdemeanor offenses and even some felonies by the years, uh, beginning with um, people becoming eligible. I think 180 days out from her signing the bill, and she signed the the, the slate of bills yesterday. So uh, beginning two years, actually not 180 days, beginning two years uh, from the date it was signed, the clean slate law will expunge misdemeanors seven years after sentencing and felonies 10 years after se sentencing when they're released from incarceration or whichever comes later. It also, uh, other, other bills that she signed in addition to the clean slate uh, bill will go into effect 180 days from Monday. And you know, one of them will make it possible for misdemeanors to be expunged after three years, felonies after seven years, and serious misdemeanors or a single day felony to five years, short, which will shorten the waiting time to apply for expungement, right? Because for now, right now, I think it's years out. Um, felonies or misdemeanors from within the same 24 hour period uh, that they've deemed, lawmakers have deemed one bad night will be eligible. It uh, does also bar certain crimes from being able to be expunged, whether it is domestic violence or a crime that you may have committed uh, that warranted a life prison sentence, um, sexual abuse, child abuse, 
uh, and DUIs, which is also another contentious thing that uh, legislators debated over because that sometimes can technically be a part of that one night, one bad night kind of behavior. Um, and then, of course, it creates the process for marijuana uh, misdemeanors and felonies to uh, be expunged. I don't think it is uh, a broad expungement of all marijuana crimes. And so we still have some work to do in that area, but it is creating the process. And so uh, Governor Whitmer actually getting some uh, stuff done and signing some bills into law despite uh, domestic terrorists seeking her life and the life of other people um, in the legislature. So, uh, you know, we're, we're highly critical when we need to be on this show, but we also give a nod when, when it's due. So hats off to Governor Whitmer for number one, helping Michigan to stay safe or working with the FBI so that she and a lot of our friends, this is very personal for me, a lot of our friends in the legislature, we have a friend who's the Lieutenant Governor of this state. He's a friend um, whose safety was at risk um, and still trudging ahead. I know this made some people mad, <laughs> but she doesn't care. So yeah, Donna, you have anything to add to want anything to add? Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> one, um, I'm glad that she kept us safe. Um, two, it is so crazy to me that we pass legislation and we know it's important and we say it'll take effect two years from now. I met now. Um, that's, you, you kick a can down the road and you give enough time for people in the legislature to reverse it or to somehow um, handicap the bill so it doesn't do what you want it to do. The second thing is we need to change, we need criminal justice reform. We can do all of the expungement we want, but you cannot erase a criminal trail, on a, 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 I'm sorry, a trail, an email trail or a, um, you know, internet trail documenting what's happened in these cases. Um, so many times when I do, um, when, when you have to run background checks, you know, and we have to run them whenever we hire a new employee, um, and you get the background checks and you may have all of this stuff, including every arrest, and it's really hard. When I first started seeing these things, I didn't know what whether to look as this is an arrest, but I don't see what is the disposition of that. And so how do we seal off people's criminal records so that they are not available? Even if the record has been expunged, the record of the arrest is available. The record of the prosecution is available online, even when there's an expungement that took place. And so that becomes one of those things that I think we have to look at privacy and the Bill of Rights around what's available on the internet to make sure that people are not forever damned because maybe I got arrested for something, the charges were dropped, but an employer can see that arrest, that arrest record stays with me even with an expungement. So I'm not, to, not trying to minimize it, I'm just wondering what is the impact going to be from an employer standpoint when I run that criminal background and I see it. Is there a way to seal off what's out there on the internet? That's right, which is why I say, you know, it doesn't go far enough. I think undergirded with, to all of this is the economic disparity that comes when one gets into trouble and that barrier uh, preventing them access to uh, economic mobility through a job or even 
um, a career. And, you know, the, the governor is touting that, you know, this will go away. That remains to be seen. That, that, that piece remains to be seen when we talk about increasing access to economic opportunity through jobs and career trainings and, you know, things of that sort. You're absolutely right, Donna. I agree with you. Tawana, did you have anything to add? Yeah, you know, and especially if we're thinking about Detroit, it's one of the reasons why um, I participated with the Actionable Intelligence for Social Policy Initiative, and we co-authored a, a toolkit called Centering Racial Equity Throughout Data Integration. So every aspect of the data life cycle, and this is one of the, if, if governments actually implement this, you know, uh, way of uh, integrating data, those things would happen because they would be looking at the disparities um, that happen to communities when when their information is trailing them and literally creating a stream or a looping cycle of injustice is what we call it um, through the work that uh, I've done with our data bodies is you know it's a literal looping cycle of injustice. And so, um, yeah, so if you if you center racial equity throughout the entire data life cycle, you'll start to remove those disparities um, at every point of the um, the data trail or the data stream. Um, and so I agree. I think immediately needs to be expunged. And I think that once someone serves their time, um, and there, I, I think the minute that and, and you know, and, and I don't think everybody who gets time should serve time, but that's a whole nother conversation. Right. But I think the minute that someone serves some time and they get out, then it should not be impacting how they make a livelihood. I think that that's an unfair double dip at criminalizing a person who has already paid their debt to society. Mm -hmm. I have this book um, that talks about the new Jim Code. And oh yeah, Ruha Benjamin, that's a, a comrade of mine. Oh my goodness, I love Ruha Benjamin. And you know, I just love reading it. And I just love listening to you talk about it because you just, you have some words. Okay. I just want to say, <laughs> you have some words. You describe it as, oh, that's so eloquent. I wish I said it that way. <laughs> she's my birthday twin too. She's a, she's an actual, she's an actual comrade of mine. And uh, she's my birthday twin. She's brilliant. Yes. Tremendously brilliant. The name, the new Jim Code, I was like, I have to buy this, you know, yeah. and I have not regretted it. It just opens your eyes. If I was at a conference in Baltimore a couple of years ago, it was a, a Reclaiming Vacant Properties con conference, and there were some people who were bragging about this data integration, how they could look up a person, they could find out about their public benefits and about their social just, I mean, their, their arrest records and they can find about their benefit records and they can have all of this data at their footsteps. Yes. Isn't that a cool look at that race after technology? Yeah. Abolitionist tools for the new Jim code. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I can never remember the name, but that, that cover is so, um, so captivating. Anyway, they were talking about this thing as if it was a good thing. And so I think I was the person in the room who was really horrified. Now I'm in Milwaukee. Wisconsin, which is, you know, one of the worst states to live in as a black person or one of the worst places to live as a black person. And these people who, who were from Milwaukee were describing how they integrated data. And I thought, this is horrible. People who live here have no freedom because all of these data points are following you in ways that nobody wants. Like, I don't want people to know all of my business, okay? I'll tell you a little bit at a time, but I don't want you to know everything about me. Nobody does. We all value privacy, but the privacy of Black people has been so devalued in so many ways. And you get it from the Green Light Project where I can see where you walk. 
And, um, you know, so I think that it's important for us to look at the larger context of how we use data. Why do I need to run a criminal background check every time I hire somebody? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we're living in a biometric industrial complex now where they want gate, de gate detection, how you walk. They want emotion detection, detection, what you're thinking. They want face detection. They want mass detection. I mean, uh, and these are lucrative industries. So there's really no incentive for them to slow that down. And so that's why we have to get real clear um, about the impact that this is having on our communities. And when you look at green light and how it's tied to like a legacy, a literal legacy, Simone Brown, another great book, uh, Dark Matters, she talks about the 18th century lantern laws where if you were a black person and you weren't in the presence of a white person, you had to have a lit lantern in front of your face. And so when you think of Project Greenlight and the gentrification in the city, it's really just a replication of an ongoing um, way of uh, socially controlling black and brown uh, communities when they want to make the city feel safer, newer, wider demographics mm -hmm. because when they when police the police relationship to black people is surveillance control and um and really keeping us under control the police relationship to white people is protection mm -hmm. but it gets sold to us that we are being protected right and yet you know um that that um jill scott song watching me um <laughs> And she says, yeah. we, you keep saying that I'm free. You keep saying that I'm free, but you're watching me. And that's the way I feel whenever I um, hear about Project Greenlight. You hear about these projects. You hear that they're effective. Crime is going up. It's not going down. People feel mm -hmm. less safe. People don't feel as though they can call the police and get a reliable response. And yet we keep on pretending and they keep selling to Black people, which is probably the worst part of it all, that this is what's protecting the Black community. Yeah. When I see a police car driving down the street, I don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, is my, are my taillights working? Did I remember to fix my plate? Am I driving? I feel observed. I yeah. know that when I see a police car follow me, they're running my plate to see if I have insurance on it, looking for a pretext to stop me. This is the way I feel. And I know I'm not alone. Um, so how do we begin shifting that thinking um, so that people understand that police don't make you safe. Mm. Well, let's 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 get into it. Let, let's close out this segment and then let's just get right into it. That's going to wrap up the Fresh Off the Press segment. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com uh, or uh, our email. That was our email. Hit us up on our emails at gmail, AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com or AuthenticallyDetroit on Facebook. Instagram and Twitter. Tawana, I really want to give you the opportunity to answer that question that Donna just posed. Yeah, I mean, if we look at the history of policing, right, we, you know, another good book is um, Slavery by Another Name. And it talks about like the convict leasing program and how, you know, after slavery ended, that uh, uh, white people who used to own black people were trying to figure out how to, you know, still get labor done. Um, and so they had to they had to institute like these these laws that could be violated, like vagrancy laws and things like that. And so um, so there's you know this long history of policing being a mechanism for funneling bodies into the criminal justice system for free labor 
uh, in the U.S. And so those things don't get talked about a lot. And I know that there are wonderful human beings who joined the institution of law enforcement because they wanted to be contributing members uh, in society. But if, if they were to take a deep analysis um, as to the ways that they are being forced to respond um, to safety concerns and things like that, then uh, even the officers themselves would be able to see that they're mostly responding to property uh, and violence and after the fact, when, uh, after situations uh, have taken place. And so, yeah, I agree with you. Um, we're, there is a, you know, and I talk to parents, it's similar to the way I talk to parents about their children walking around terrified of them. You know, like you want your child to respect you and to, to have love and compassion for you, not fear you, fear that the wrath of God is going to come down on them for every little thing they do. And that's how you feel when a police car is behind you. It's like, you know, uh, what did I do wrong? Even if you've done nothing wrong, you go into the immediate you know, anxiety and fear um, that either you could lose your life or, you know, you could be incarcerated, um, you know, and, and that is not the relation, that is not a relationship that any human being should have to another human being, whether they're in a uniform or not in a uniform. Um, and so, yeah, I think we just need to have a deeper dive about what true safety is. And I think we know that true safety is resource communities. Um, you don't have to have an imagination, just go to a resource community and, and look at the crime stats. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it doesn't take a lot of market research to, to understand that. And so there just isn't a lot of incentive to have deeper imagination when it comes to black and brown bodies because we've been creating free labor for so long in this country that there has to be a mechanism for, for them to get that from us. And incarceration is that mechanism. And in order to get us in there, they need some kind of enforcement and law enforcement is the enforcement. So I have a story to tell a couple. Um, and I wanna get your reaction to them. And then I know Orlando has a couple of questions, but I, uh, we were standing on my balcony and looked outside and we saw a man who's pretty muscular and um, I think kind of crazy because I saw him one time with a snake around his neck and it's like, you can't have snakes. So you can only have small dogs under 25 pounds anyway, and cats, but he, he was standing out there with some big snake and I was like, I'm not going out by him. Anyway, I saw, we saw him beating his girlfriend. Mm. And so one of the neighbors screamed, stop that. I don't know if she called the police or he called the police, but she went running off. The police came. He told the police that she attacked him, so she was arrested. While he was in, she was in jail, trying to defend herself, he was moving other women into the apartment and ended up trashing the apartment and, and knocking out windows. And that story resonated with me because I had a domestic violence call many years ago where the police threatened to arrest me um, and believed that my ex-husband um, was being abused by me, even though to look at us, obviously I was not going to abuse this man. I was a terrified, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so I talked my way out of going to jail and he ended up going instead. They said, we have to take somebody. But, you know, when you look at police as protection, what are the consequences for those stories? It broke my heart when I found out that this woman ended up in legal trouble or her house is torn apart. She's been brutalized and now she's had a financial and legal loss because the police didn't do their job. They could have asked people, there were witnesses. And I don't even know if she knew how to defend herself. Another story, I'm living and um, my, it was late at night and there was somebody who had been kind of stalking, harassing me and it was four in the morning, my doorbell kept ringing and I was home alone. 
and they kept doing it and I heard my car alarm go off. So I got scared someone was trying to break into my home. And I called 911, the police came, got in my car, saw there was a young man in my car, pulled him out. I knew, immediately recognized he was a friend of my daughter's who had become stranded and came to my home to seek help, okay? The police began beating him right in front of me. And I said, wait, I know who he is. I made a mistake, beat him. Stop moving, they kick him. Stop moving, punching him. And I'm watching them beat. I'm so scared he's going to be killed because mm -hmm. they think he's moved too fast. I'm hysterical. They're telling me to go back in the house to, so I can be safe. And finally a woman says, ma'am, go in the house. I'll get it taken care of. So she finally called a supervisor. A supervisor came out, said, do you know this man? I said, yes, I made a mistake. I'm so sorry. And I heard them laughing at me. <laughs> stop, stop. And they're mocking me. And he finally comes in the house and I let him in and he says, everything's okay. And I hear him crying that night. And I will never forget those tears of powerlessness and abuse. And, and I was like, I am, I'm still the most sorry person in the world. But the thing is, I could do nothing to stop it. And I watched it happen in my own. He did nothing wrong. He was in my car. I called the police. So I guess my question is, how is that protection? The two One time I reached out for protection, I almost got arrested. Another time I reached out for protection, I watched somebody almost get beaten. I watched somebody get assaulted and possibly, you know, could have escalated from there. So where's the protection here? Why is it that the police consistently get it wrong, in my opinion, and not protecting the people, even when they call and ask for help? And I know I'm not alone in that. Yeah, I mean, so I think we have to, we, it's, an, it's a systemic issue, right? So you have, in a, let's look at a, let's look at a, a city like Detroit, where, um, there are a lot of things that are being untreated, uh, you know, mental health, um, uh, a, a lot of a lot of situations in Detroit are being untreated, um, and you have officers a lot, you know, even though I know at this point a lot don't live in the city, but there are a lot who are on the department who grew up in the city, who, um, and I'm not just relegating them to like people who are from Detroit as an example, but I'm. Y'all gonna have to edit this. So, <laughs> so we don't so have basically, to go for it. Okay. So, um, so here, here's what I'm trying to say. There are a lot of officers who are on the force who are not getting the support, mental support that they need. Um, and this is not just Detroit. This is all across the globe. So you have, you have humans, flawed humans who are in this profession for one reason or another. Some of them are in the profession because you know they uh, extension of white supremacy and just to be honest, but there are others who really genuinely joined the force thinking that they were gonna be contributors, um, have seen some of the worst of the worst uh, uh, as far as like crime scenes and things like that and are out there every day um, interacting with other humans who are suffering under trauma um, and, and it's just, it's a situation that is set up to fail. And this is why officers should not be responding to many of the situations that they respond to, but because city governments all across the world lack imagination, they are not resourcing the departments that should be responding to these situations. And they're, they're ballooning these budgets for, um, 
for law enforcement to be social workers, educators, uh, uh, um, priests, pastors. I mean, you name it. The 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 police are showing up to be the the every every aspect of the um, situations that happen in our families and our communities when they should never have been that. Honestly, I think it would be better off if police literally were just protecting property. I mean, because a lot of the officers that are on the job are not uh, emotionally equipped to be dealing with the public. Um, and so maybe they should be stationed at, you know, buildings and protecting property and let people who can handle uh, interacting with other human beings be the people who are responding to situations like if uh, and I don't want to romanticize social work because I know that our community a lot of times we go in that system and we don't come back out but let's just say the social working uh, industry was more holistic um, there could have been a benefit to someone showing up to your house that day and having a, a, some emotional support available for that young man, right? Uh, some resources around where he could go to stay, where he could go get a meal, those sorts of things. But police are not trained to be that. They're trained to respond to crime. And so they show up to situations looking for a criminal. Um, and so that, you know, those are the dialogues that are not happening enough. Um, is we have these, we, we have these people who are ill-equipped, not getting the support, being, being uh, told that they shouldn't emote um, you know, if you're, if you're showing your emotions on the department, what then happens to you? So people are out there suffering emotional breakdowns and things like that and not able to freely discuss it. Um, but, but aren't there people who are also bringing their bias to the job in ways that are dangerous? Well, like, that's why I said white supremacists. And, <laughs> right, and, and male supremacy, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm women, these women, they start these arguments and these brothers get out of And by the time they get there, a woman who is being abused is not being protected by police officers who may in fact be abusing their partners and who believe really that women are the cause of all violence. And if she hadn't said that or whatever, and it shows up and there's no real accountability. Like, what do you do when that happens? I suppose you could go. And then also, you know, when a white male commits a crime, even when they know it's a criminal, he has humanity and he has rights. And these were black men, by the way, who were doing this to this brother, okay? When, it, when this perceived as a black man, he had a place to live. He was hanging out and got stranded, okay? Mm -hmm. What he really needed was the police to come, see that it was somebody I knew and say, and me apologize for wasting their time and then them leaving, okay? What they didn't need, I was afraid or this would not have happened. What we didn't need is for them to assault whoever it was. You don't have to assault somebody to arrest them. If I didn't know him, you don't need to assault him. You can handcuff him without assaulting him. There was no attempt to do that. It was from the very beginning, just beating. And that's hatred. That's anger. That's something that even if you're protecting property, my car was property, my home was property, still there are people who you are going to interface with. And when those people are dehumanized to you, you can act in any kind of way. You've decided to put him in this slot as criminal and therefore all of this stuff is okay. And that's how it came across to me. And I just, like I said, I watched it unfold. If I had not seen, I would not necessarily believe how crazy it got and how out of control for no reason. But then you hear about the guy who was sleeping in the car in Atlanta in the Wendy's parking lot or whatever, and he's no longer alive. Mm -hmm. And they, oh, he resisted. Well, 
what do you claim as resistance? If you pull me a certain way, my body's going to resist. It's a physical response to somebody telling you to do something, but pulling you in a different kind of way, your body acts to protect you, even if you don't want to. And so anyway, I'm not trying to spend too much on that. I just think that we really have to think that through because Black people have called the police on relatives. You had the mother out there in Oakland County. She called the police on her daughter. She felt afraid her daughter would ended up in you know juvenile forever. The judge wouldn't let her out because of homework. And it's like, so what did this mother learn? I cannot call the police and she probably shouldn't. I'm, you know what I mean? We've learned uh, that I, there's no protection. 911 does not protect us unless you're sending an ambulance. I so agree. And I, yeah. I agree. And I just want to be clear, you know, uh, white supremacy culture does not exempt black people. So um, do that. <laughs> and if you think about it, if you think about like the ways that we've been taught to respond to blackness, to black bodies, um, no matter who you are, anti-blackness is a global phenomenon, right? So that. <laughs> people who are unhealed, um, not getting this, the, 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 and I, that's why I want to talk about the well-being because if we're going to systemically talk about transforming these systems, we got to think about the individuals that are putting these uniforms on and entering into our, our communities. That's not exempting them. That's holding them to a deeper accountability. And so like you have a force that does not allow for these people to have emotions. Yeah. And so those emotionless people go out into the community in search of criminals, you know, they, they're being told every, you know, go out there, shoot to kill, da, 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 get home safe. And it's like, they're not told, hey, you should make sure this person makes it home. Everybody needs to make it home safe. No, the goal is for them to make it home safe by any means necessary. And that type of mentality does not allow for humanity uh, to be a consideration. It takes individuals doing individual work um, to try to be a different person within that institution. And we all know that's different. That's difficult. You need a, if the institution is going to be more humane, it needs to support humanity. And the, the way policing is set up right now, that is not the case. Um, and so, yeah, people are out here practicing white supremacy culture um, and, and know how to protect white bodies and don't see black people as fully human. And just because you're black doesn't mean you're not one of the perpetrators of that. Say right? it. Say I. You know, so many of so many of our black brothers and sisters have internalized these tenets of white supremacy and perpetuate the same kind of oppression and suppression that uh, we're talking about on other black bodies. When we look at the city of Detroit, a predominantly black city with a lot of black people in power. Uh, we can we can make that argument, and I want to. This I think it's the perfect segue to talk about the city council vote on the extension of the Data Works uh, contract on uh, facial recognition. Everybody on city council is a person of color except one person. Everybody, right? He's a and criminal. He's the only who is has been indicted. Sitting up here. And you know what? I should know everything about him. I'm, let, I, it, let him be black. I would know his bank account number. I'd know his childhood home, all his best friends when he was three years old. Because when a black person commits a crime, all is told. The news media will not leave him alone. You know, really, if I could do anything, I have Bridge Magazine. Just give me all the information on him. But anyway, so. Hey, focus. Hey, so. Come on. We see, we see, we see this vote. 
come to extend the contract even after all of the public comment um, for that particular for two years. I mean, people years has been a a, a dissenting one. What do you make of that? Who are they talking to to justify this vote even after on record numerous people saying no? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's money. It's, you know, Dr. King called for a radical revolution of values in the 60s and asked us to not preface, to not prefer property and machines over people. And clearly this, um, this city has, um, has really bought into the idea that the preservation of property um, and the in, and innovation and, uh, and biometric data extraction um, is a priority over humans. And so uh, by that, I mean, um, if you look at the programs that are, have been launched in Detroit, uh, uh, the, the uh, Stingray technology where, you know, cell phone tracking, the real-time crime centers, uh, Project Greenlight, the license plate readers, um, there's so much stuff that's been implemented in the city um, that, you know, just, just does not prioritize humans, even though there's been evidence um, through MIT, through NIST, through uh, uh, data scientists all over the world who've said this is a racially biased uh, system and technology is going to misidentify darker skin tones. Detroit is 80% Black. We've already had two misidentifications that we know of. We know there'll be many more to come. Um, and they just doubled down on it. And we even had city council folks who voted for it say, I'm afraid of this technology. I fear that I'm going to be misidentified, but uh, we have to give the city something. We have to give the residents something. And so to me, that just shows that there is no will to challenge and, and stand up for the residents of the city. Um, it's very disheartening that we have something like face recognition in Detroit. The, the black, the last remaining, one of the last remaining black meccas, while 13 other predominantly white cities have banned this and counting are continuing to ban face recognition. Mm. And so it says a lot um, that we are being put under social control. I don't think people realize there are over 2000 green light cameras at this point at over 700 businesses. Um, something that started at eight or nine gas stations in 2016 is now over 700 businesses. We're talking about rec centers, religious centers, public housing, schools. Um, and so our, we're it's literally- an apartment building the other day. Yeah, like restaurants. I mean, we're literally in a perpetual lineup. And I, you know, I just want to say that folks who are sitting back in, you know, others in, uh, in Michigan thinking like, oh, that's a Detroit issue. No, honey, if you have a state ID or a driver's license since 1999, you're you are in that database. Yeah. You know, that's why they picked up Robert Williams in Farmington Hills, man in his business, man in his business. And so, yeah, I, you know, people better go on ahead and wake up about this issue or um, it's going to be a lot of people trying to fight their way out of a, a, a justice system that have never even interacted with law enforcement. Um, there, are some people, there are some people who would counter what you are saying and, and cite the numerous reports that have recently come out about our city being the most dangerous city um, in the United States of America this past year um, and use that as justification to create uh, a narrative around 
using this kind of technology? What is your answer to that? Run that $30 million that y'all spent on this system that obviously doesn't work. So how, how are, how are we, how are we number one in crime and y'all spent $30 million and you got 700 surveillance cameras, you got, I mean, that's, listen, it's literally not rocket science, <laughs> you know, like what is happening? Like, why are we continuing to allow them to come out with this rhetoric about safety and they've spent $30 million dollars on this program they have three real-time crime centers they literally sitting in there like the bat cave bless you looking at surveillance cameras all day and we still number one so that lets us know it doesn't create safety right because the reality if i'm not mistaken tuana is that this was an extension of an existing program it's not like they were saying let's try something new so that now we'll be safe this is let's continue doing the same crap we were doing before, um, but this time we're going to get a different result, right? <laughs> yeah, and let me be real. I, you know, I don't know if I'm getting trouble for this statement, but we got to look at the origins of Project Greenlight, right? Dan Gilbert, Dan Gilbert had his own surveillance system, and police was using that surveillance system, and then now we have our own version of it. And so we, we just got to, those are the things we have to just look at. We have to look at why we have this type of data extraction. You know, when I think of the Detroit growing up and the Detroit now, it's so crazy. Like I remember it, when as a child, I could go to Belle Isle and it wasn't illegal to be outside at 11 PM. Mm -hmm. you know, I remember I could just walk on any property downtown and I could stand there all day and night if I wanted to. Maybe I didn't want to stand there. I have been escorted out of Belle Isle at 10 p.m. I'm like, are you serious? I got you state troopers rounding me up and pushed away from campus. I cannot marching. believe this, but the, you know, uh, my sister and brother-in-law belong to the Detroit Yacht Club. So if I could be, I could be there until I want to. I can drink there if I want to. I can't drink on the island. So you cannot tell me that this is not a policy that's directed at people without money or privilege. You can't even get on the Belle Isle unless you are a member of the Yacht Club on some hot summer days. You have to show your membership in order to get on, you know? And so I can see the disparity that, I'm, and I'm standing there at the foot of Belle Isle looking at this white state trooper turning black people away. And I'm thinking this can't be safe for him because mm -hmm. I'm so angry. I cannot even imagine how some other folks are feeling right now. Just the feeling that the city does not really belong to residents in the way that it did. It's not our city. We are given permission to be in certain places at certain times. But I remember the days for the curfew where, you know, we could be places because a park belonged to the people. And maybe it wasn't a good idea to be there at this time, but you weren't being overly policed in the way that you are. Um, how do you respond to that? I mean, because you're creating a status offense if you're on the... Um, on the river walk at 10.01 PM. And Dan Gilbert's private police will let you know if you're there because aren't those spaces policed by a private individual? Yeah, and I, you know, I, I just really want people to think back at when, when he was drilling cameras into the brick and mortar of businesses that he didn't even own um, and had launched his own private, similar to the real-time crime center um, and, you know, so nothing is not accidental. It's not accidental. And I really, and I, I'm really concerned if we get another four years of this current administration 
and one of the, the one of the blackest cities in America is completely covered with surveillance cameras, federal agents, and all sorts of other mechanisms to keep us under social control. What is that? What's going to happen to the residents of the city? Um, and so, you know, I'm just always thinking at the bigger, you know, the the looking a little bit further out at the bigger picture because um, all of this happened under Trump. All of this happened under Trump. The, we came under this surveillance at the onset of Trump's administration. And I honestly just don't think it's an accident. Right. And you know, I, I, I like to look at the city and, and, some, and, and all of this happened under Trump. But I like to think of the city. And uh, for years, I felt like Detroit had a lot in common with Cuba. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I wrote about that, too. Got to share it with you. Yeah, I'm like, this is my Virgo sister. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, I was there when Fidel Castro died. I don't know how I, I couldn't have planned a, a more unique historic trip, but yeah. So yeah, so I, I definitely want to read that. But I think of it as Cuba. I remember when Coleman Young took over as mayor, um, a lot of businesses disinvested in the city of Detroit. Corporations mm -hmm. disinvested. Banks stopped making loans in the city of Detroit. And they continued that behavior until Dennis Archer became mayor. And then the floodgates opened. Mm -hmm. But when the floodgates opened, they did not open to the people in the city. They opened to people to establish their perch in the city of Detroit, right? And yeah. so now we're going to take it back. And so I've been reading um, and researching a lot about this whole concept of Detroit as a colony and what is a colonial power. Is a colonial mm. power where you control the people and the labor and you extract resources, but you've got to put your foothold in the community. You've got to establish your stronghold so that you can maintain control over all of this. And I don't think we see what's happening, but you have the complete loss of Black power in some sectors in the city of Detroit in ways that we would have found unimaginable 20 years ago. And yet yeah. here we are. We don't control our water. We don't really control what's happening with um, economic development in the city. We have very little input into the economic development agenda for the city. Um, and, you know, the land bank, all of the economic development engines, somehow all of the things lead to a mayor who um, feels very disconnected from the lives of the people who I love and care about, including myself. So I'm just wondering, you know, how we take this is in, in, in how do we interpret this is this just about one thing is it just about surveillance or is it about um really an attempt to change the nature of who detroit is and what detroit is so that we no longer have the power and influence we had in the past it's so complicated you know my head is always in the, the space of biometrics and always thinking about how well in the in, because i'm in that world so much a lot of us know that our data is literally the new oil. Um, and there's a lot of benefits to extracting uh, biometrics and data from Detroit, particularly. Um, and everything that's being modeled here is being packaged up. And, and I mean, every, even overseas, like they're, they're packaging up um, our surveillance program and a lot of the things that they've rolled out here and trying to lay them out in black and brown communities all over the United States and even in some instances out of the country. And so while we're here resisting on the ground, they're out there saying, 
we've had a tremendous success rate um, with this real-time surveillance program. And I would also argue that it's not an it's not an accident that during the height of the pandemic, if you were watching Trump on TV, he was demonizing Whitmer and championing Duggan. Now, when have you ever seen him as a Republican president on TV giving kudos to a Democrat mayor? Um, and so those were things that I was paying attention to um, that. And, and, you know, and so I, I know I'm, I'm like doing name dropping that I don't normally do, but I just paid attention to the fact that, you know, our contact tracing contract went to Dan Gilbert. He's not in the medical industry. He's not in, he's not in medicine. He's, you know, and so like, it really is about the data. Um, it really is about the data. And I know that that's difficult for folks to grasp because they're not waking up every day doing that work like I am, but I think that we're going to learn over the next couple of years just how significant um, it is that we have as many surveillance cameras as we have um, and that we're, um, that our, we're being surveilled in the way that we're being surveilled. I'm confused when you say it's about the data. Mm -hmm. Why would the data of Detroiters be like gold? What would the, what, what's the value of the data to a market? Is it um, they're testing out ways to do things that they can replicate in other places and their desire to take over the world, like, you know, the cartoon characters, or is it something more specific? Well, if we look at face recognition as an example, right now it, uh, it doesn't recognize darker skin tones, right? So what better way to test case it than to implement it in a predominantly black city? So you can get, if you, if you connect that with a real-time crime surveillance program and you put 700 and, and actually the mayor is pursuing 4,000 cameras. Um, if, you, if you lay those cameras out all over the city, how, whose images are you gonna get um, in that system? Who's gonna be fed into those algorithms? And so um, we're, we're gonna fix the system. Like, <laughs> um, and we know that fixing of the system uh, is not a solution. So a lot of the argument for pursuing and extending these licenses is so that it can get better, um, so that the, the algorithms can get better at reading Black people. And so in order for that to happen, you need more Black people to be read. Um, and so that is one of the reasons why City Council passed that contract and gave another $200,000 to DPD, because they're arguing that it's going to get better, they need this maintenance, they need extensions of these licenses. But if you pay attention to the 13 cities that have banned predominantly white cities, and I want to emphasize this because it reads them accurately. And they're saying, no, this is a violation of our civil liberties, our privacy and our civil rights. Well, black people don't get a chance to say that. We don't get to say it's a violation of our civil liberties and our civil rights. People don't wanna hear that because they look at us in, as inherently criminal uh, and dangerous and worthy of being surveilled and socially controlled. Um, so they, the only argument that they have listened to is the fact that it misidentifies us. So because um, DPD has convinced uh, city council that, well, we just need to make the system better um, that's why they're, they approve the money because they're thinking like, we'll just get it to act better on black people. Um, it's not about civil liberties and civil rights. We don't care about that. If we cared about that, they wouldn't have 700, excuse me, surveillance cameras, they wouldn't have drones. They wouldn't have uh, surveillance helicopters. They wouldn't have license plate readers on, uh, on a green light cameras and on the traffic lights. Um, 
So it's not, they don't value the civil liberties and the civil rights in Detroit. Detroit is a guinea pig, has always, has been a guinea pig for at least a half century since it's been a predominantly uh, black city. It's been a guinea pig for like ways to replicate harms in smaller black and brown communities. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, that's why you saw emergency managers from here go to Flint, you know? Um, so it's anything that succeeds here, they just kind of bottle it up and send it somewhere else. There's Nic um, uh, I can't think of her name right now. Simone Lightfoot says we're big mama, Detroit is big mama. Yeah. And that kind of puts me in mind of that. Um, it also tells me though, that the, there is a real value to black labor. And this is something that you pointed out. There's a value to markets that are built on black pain whether it is prisons or privatized schools that don't do a very good job or check cashing places or the fear economy places or the fear economy we've built this these there's a value to us being in these situations people make money off of it and i think that we sometimes have to ask ourselves who benefits and yeah. what i'm hearing from you is that when it comes to face recognition um, when it comes to some of these data uh, portals, Dan Gilbert personally, his companies benefit. And when it comes yeah, to yeah. Um, some of the other things, there's people in our larger society who benefit by extracting value from people inside of Detroit. And our system is not designed to uphold the rights and needs of people who live in Detroit who are treated in many, if not most instances, more as subjects than as citizens. Because yeah. citizens, are the purpose of the law. Citizens are the purpose of the right. Rights were enshrined to protect citizens. And if those rights are routinely denied us, then we are really subjects to <laughs> the control of somebody else, right? Yeah, well, what people don't, so, so Detroit is getting paid back, much like how the, how the country responded to Barack Obama being elected as black president, right? There was a time when Detroit boasted the highest home ownership um, in the country, you know, where black businesses were just vibrant and thriving, where we were literally a model for black self-determination across the United States, right? And so there's a resentment of that kind of thing. And so we've been in perpetual punishment for a half century. Mm -hmm. If you look back at when Coleman Young was elected to mayor, they, they've been narratively targeting us consistently since that point. And you can point to movies. If you look at 1977, A Fistful of Yen, and a film where they, they're literally torturing uh, quote unquote criminals in this film, right? And the person that they thought was the most heinous of the violators was like this CIA agent spy. And the mind you, the person who was punishing uh, people, they had done things, they had beheaded people, they had done all these torturous things to these quote unquote criminals. When they got to this guy who was supposed to be the worst of the worst, his punishment was to take him to Detroit. And he literally screams, no, not Detroit, anywhere but, but Detroit. Mm -hmm. And so they have been doing a number on Detroit um, for a literal half century, a literal mm. half century. So anywhere that I've traveled in the world, people are like Detroit, you know, for, for the last 20 some years, when, since I've been like really traveling. And then now the last five years, oh, aren't you happy Detroit is coming back? You know, and when I hear Detroit is coming back, I hear make America great again. That's what I Ooh. hear. 
<laughs> we, I've been I've been screaming this from the rooftops that in addition to all of the other battles that we are in, uh, one of the most significant ones is the narrative war that we are in. You are speaking, you are speaking to that and how messages get cascaded and internalized as truth when those of us who are on the ground know that a lot of those messages are just inherently false. And so how do you, how do you build campaigns like uh, surveillance? Is it safety? So is, it's, 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 it's a campaign, but it's also a shift in narrative and in thinking, taking into account the years and years of unlearning and undoing that we have to do about ourselves in our city, as well as the world <laughs> about yeah. the city yeah yeah and one of the campaigns that we're doing um and there's actually a, a few this weekend in different neighborhoods uh we've been in collaboration with like folks like feed and freedom growers in the box center and green light black futures um among others to have a campaign called green chairs not green lights and it's yeah. literally asking community members come back to the front porches look out for each other see each other don't watch each other you know what I'm saying? And so <clears throat> this campaign is tremendous because people are tapping into the nostalgia of when they felt safe. When you ask folks a time when they felt safe, they don't instantly go to like police and law enforcement. They go to police and law enforcement when you ask, them, if you ask them if they feel safe and they say no, and then they like, we need more police. But if you ask them a time when they felt safe, they say, well, when we knew who our neighbors were. You know, when we had more block clubs, when we were doing things in the community, when we had rec centers, when we, that's when people say they felt safe. Make and their so community the green, resource. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Gro walkable grocery stores, schools that weren't closed. I mean, you know. Um, the, the two examples I use, you know, if I had a neighbor to call, I would have said, hey, I think somebody's at my door. Can you come check it out? As opposed to calling the police, right? Yeah. But knowing neighbor can come help me out single woman alone by myself in certain situations you call on family and neighbors who are near you to provide you with some protection whereas now we don't have that and we are forced to 911 which won't come and then when they do they don't do the right thing all the time so that's a really good point I think that's a really really important point is reconstituting our communities I want to talk a little bit I know that we're going long but I love talking to you um, about how um, how the foreclosure crisis contributed, though, to the feelings of um, this destroying our neighborhoods, destroying the quality of life. I've talked to so many residents who felt okay, and then the residents across the street, next door to them, lost their homes to foreclosure. And either you have a succession of strangers moving in, or you have a vacant that's being occupied by a squatter who they don't know, or the home is at risk of being burned down. And so I hear more from people about that loss of safety than anything else. And it seems like the solution there is another one where we really talk about why, how do we keep people in their homes? How do we keep neighborhoods in a cohesive state so that people don't end up in you know, this no man's land? Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> here I go, here I go saying his name again, but I th think people need to think back to when the hardest hit funds were taken away from the programs that would have kept people in their homes and diverted to like, you know, blight and, um, and the land bank. Um, and so, and, you know, Gilbert had a lot to do with that as well. I mean, that, 
he went to the White House under Obama um, and, and, and requested to have those funds diverted. Um, and so, and that is evidence. Those are things that can be researched. Um, and so I think it's really important for us to think about how much power money has over the decisions and the policies that are made in the city of Detroit. Um, and so, you know, the residents haven't even been made whole from the $600 million that was taken um, from them, missed tax uh, and uh, homes that people lost tens of thousands of homes. I mean, at one point you could look at the map and every aspect of the map uh, was covered um, with tax foreclosures. Um, and so those are, those are sort of things like the residents have not been made whole um, in that and, and, and people have gotten wealthier and wealthier while residents have been displaced. But, um, but it's, it's all a part of the plan to remove the least desirable residents and replace them with residents that uh, are considered more vibrant uh, uh, and greater contributors um, for no fault of their own, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that um, it's been a, a great uh, disparity what has happened to Detroit but I also think that we'll win at the end of the day because, you know, as uh, uh, the old quote says, um, you know, uh, truth is on the side of the oppressed. And I just really think that at the end of the day that um, Detroiters will rise again um, in defense of this city and, um, and, and, and we'll, we'll get some vibrancy back that is not handed down to us, um, but that will come from the grassroots as it always has. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, and I think that the Detroiters Bill of Rights um, is a great example of how hundreds of organizations, hundreds and hundreds of residents, uh, most impacted residents included from disabilities to folks who don't have mobility on the buses to folks who feel heavily surveilled to folks who have been displaced in their homes coming together and saying like, look, this is our city constitution and we want to see it represent the people of the city. Um, and so I, I just really think that we have an awesome opportunity in this painful moment. Grace Lee Boggs would say, with every crisis comes opportunity. And I think that we're at the moment of opportunity um, and that folks are really being, uh, using their imaginations now because we're in the middle of a pandemic and global uprisings in defense of black lives, something that I've never experienced in my whole lifetime, the whole world saying black lives matter. You ever experienced the whole world? saying Black Lives Matter, never. And, and, you know, when will we get this opportunity again? <laughs> well, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, Detroiters have been at it this a long time. Black Detroit has been at the forefront, at the vanguard of Black liberation for centuries. Okay, people mm -hmm. came here to escape slavery on the route to the Underground Railroad. And I mean, I'm reading this book, The Making of Black Detroit, at the mm -hmm. time in eighth Henry Ford, and whoa, when you look at the black power that was there, my ancestors were there doing their due in the city of Detroit. And I just think that people should not underestimate Detroiters. Not I think that um, the politicians who are currently in office should not estimate Detroiters because I think that the political will has shifted in ways that will show up this November and next November. And it is really up to them to get on board. Um, there's only so many times that the president can compliment the police chief for carrying out his agenda and people not understand that the police chief is not acting on their agenda. 
Last question for you. Did you see the, did you see the story in the Metro Times? Which one? About the one about <laughs> the vibe in the community around um, policing and featuring Ray Winans and a black Republican woman. <laughs> okay, I think well. All right, Juana, do you have a button you want to put on that that reaction? Anything that story is one of the reasons why we put out Riverwise Magazine, shameless plug, <laughs> and why Bridge <laughs> and why Bridge Magazine exists, and other you know magazines exist that's telling the the heartbeat of community members who are um, who are self determinant and 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 who will uh, see to the interests of their neighbors, and I think that. Um, any person, and I and I, I have said this, and I will continue to say this. I don't care whether you're on law enforcement or you're not on law enforcement. If you looking at a global movement in defense of Black lives, a global movement, and your solution, your your response is, oh, we'll need to do nothing different. We, you know, we the only exempt city to any type of transformation needed. Like, I mean, I don't know anybody who sees a wave and a sweep uh, of, uh, of uh, rejuvenated energy asking to defend black lives and then stands up in a black city and goes, oh, we'll need none of that change here. Like, it, I, I, I can't for the life of me even rationalize that type of thinking. And, black and city. Exactly. And I'll, and I'll finally say that we should be the model. We should, they should, everybody should have been, you know, we want to make sure that the, that the black cities become whole as an example so that we can replicate that. Um, who, who can look at this city that had, that we had to beg to get water back on at the height of a pandemic that had officer, uh, what, what is Dwayne Brown, brow beat, beat the crap out of a naked woman in a hospital just a few months ago. Um, and so many other things happen and say that we don't need some kind of uh, reform or transformation uh, within our city. Who can say that in good conscience, whether you on the force or off the force? And I really, really hate when activists are being lifted, quote unquote activists are being lifted up as the voice of no change needed. Like I, it, that's contradictory to the thing that you say that you're about. Like, why would you stand in a way of transformation and, and you know, uh, ooh, anyway, I, I could. I've been more disappointed in my, my people than I am right now, I'll be really honest with you. It's hard. Every single time I see a person who I thought was an ally standing up and saying in the poorest, blackest, most dangerous city in America, and you have the nerve to say this when we have $600 million in overtaxation, when you have the tax foreclosure crisis that took one in four homes and a, a, a foreclosure crisis that took one in three to stand up and say, we don't have problems with racism in Detroit in a, with a, our school districts completely just destroyed and dismantled by racist public policy. To say that to people who are still living with lead poisoning and still dealing with every environmental hazard. And like you said, we had our water system taken from us and we're overcharged more than just about any place in the nation for a sewage system that still is backing up into our homes. And yet you say, we don't need changes in the city. Black lives already matter here. It's offensive. We had 1,500 people die to COVID. Yes. We had almost half the state's deaths just here. Mm-hmm. 
I'm I'm right there with you. I, I mean, it, you know, and it, the thing is, I try to give us, you know, some benefit of the doubt because we all been indoctrinated into this system. But I'll tell you, like people standing in a way of liberation is just a, it, you, uh, that look like us is real hard to swallow. You understand it's real hard me? To swallow. You understand <laughs> me? Man. That's why I push for co-liberation. I'm that ally stuff yes. out the window. Out the yes. window. It's exactly. too optional. Opt in, opt out. You know. I want to. I want to yeah. plug your co-liberation deck. ECN does these. Um, to Donna, actually, ECN does these uh, stakeholder advisory group meetings, and I think it would be really impactful for residents to to hear and experience that that deck. Uh, that you you teach so eloquently on it is oh it's just it's everything. Oh, I definitely want to use that I, because listen, I could listen to Tawana speak forever anyway, yeah. and I think <laughs> will really love it because I think that what you're really speaking as I'll be honest with you, I mean, you can don't take black people in Detroit are really intelligent. We have long memories and we have um, high expectations for how we are treated unlike black people in many other places. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a readiness to hear from you, greater readiness to hear from you and to understand the whole co-liberation concept, which I have not had the privilege to hear, but I know it's great. Um, so I'm let's figure out how to like, I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then, you know, in terms of Riverwise, you know, I actually wrote an article a long time ago for Riverwise and I wanna get more involved in that and make sure our community gets it. So we usually pass out Riverwise, but now that everything is online, we need ways to share online content that you're uh, producing. Do you have an easy way for people to access that? Yeah, so the, the additions are on the uh, website, riverwisedetroit.org, the, um, the, not this uh, special edition, which, which we have been passing out boxes and going door to door with the, with the new edition. It's a, it's a special edition that talks about the current crises um, in policing, including uh, in Detroit, as well as green light and face recognition and uh, the activism that's happening. And so, um, yeah, so the, the, the magazine, um, we've been doing like the digital version, um, as well as we still print the, uh, print the 10,000 uh, copies. So. There's some people who need a printed copy. And then there's some yeah. people like me who need something electronic. So hopefully we can share both yeah, absolutely. Um, we had been distributing them in our office, always had them in our coffee tables, and they always went real quickly. But we do want to um, to promote alternative community-owned journalism um, as a, um, you know, co corrective to the commercial media that things wrong all of the time. We need to correct that absolutely. stuff. I mean, it I was born that. out of the ending of Michigan Citizen. That's that's what was the inspiration. Talk yeah, about, and, come on now. <laughs> and I'll tell you the cover of it, this this special edition is Sydney, um, Sydney James uh mural of Malice Green with all the names, way too many. Yeah. Um that's the cover, this um the front and back cover of this uh this edition. Can't wait to see it. Tawana. I need to get my copy. How am I gonna get it? Uh, you can um, uh, get it from uh, reach out through riverwisedetroit.org or contact me um, and I get you some. All right. Love to get them. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Authentically Detroit or email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Donna, it is time for shout outs. 
Well, I would like to shout out Detroit Disability Power for their Get Out the Vote initiative. Um, they are um, supporting a number of organizations, including ours reaching 10 to 15,000 people each. I think Detroit Disability Power is an outstanding um, organization that is really working to help people understand the con contributions and value of people who are disabled and also demand that we treat them with equity and justice. So I'm excited about partnering with them on this initiative. ECM will be one of the organizations. Um, I would like to shout out Detroit Action for their work in getting out the vote. Um, I think that the work that they are doing is also important. And um, I need to shout out Ms. Petty, uh, Honeycomb Petty, Tawana Honeycomb Petty for winning the Arts Award. Um, I was so excited Thank to you. read one. You're so deep, people forget you're a poet, right? It's like she's an artist and she's deep. So if you can share just a little bit about the award. Yeah, it was, uh, really, it was really a surprise. Uh, Art Matters Foundation uh, actually reached out to me and said that we've been following your work and we'd like to give you a seed to keep going. Um, and it came at a tremendous time. You know, it's one of the first times that I didn't apply for something and I got it. Um, and so that was, I, I'm I was really grateful um, for that. So it's a national award um, and uh, yeah, I'm really honored. Okay. And I would like to uh, shout out my um, nephew, Reynaldo de Guzman, who lives in Rochester, New York and has been on the streets just observing what's happened. He created a video. I'm trying to find the name of the video. It's amazing. Uh, but he created, I have it up. <laughs> it's um, called a litany. A litany, um, of, a litany for survival, yeah. a litany for survival. And he documents the protest movement in, um, New, in Rochester, New York. It's been in, um, accepted in some art competitions. It's going to be released via Comcast. And in, um, I think it's a Portland competition, but whatever. I mean, Ray put his money where his mouth is. He was out there in the streets and got struck by 11 rubber bullets in his neck and had- Wow. Um, could not walk the next day. Um, and he was standing there with press credentials with the film crew, but he is, um, you know, he's the firstborn in our family. So, you know, he's my heart, right? And for him to be out there putting his body and his, his mind on the line and really creating art out of it, I just admire it so much. So I'm going to make sure everybody gets a chance to see it when it's finally released. Um, shout out, Ray. Wow. Um, nice. I'm glad I want to shout out my younger brother, Brian, who's serving time in the Michigan Department of Corrections, uh, recently diagnosed with COVID on Friday of last week. Uh, my, I am urging the listeners to send your thoughts and prayers uh, to my baby bro um, so that he can make uh, a, full, a full recovery um, while incarcerated. I uh, want to shout out uh, the East Side Extravaganza happening on October 22nd virtually. You can go to ecn-detroit.org to RSVP or submit a sponsorship or a silent auction gift today. Also, the most outstanding on the East Side awards are live and you can vote there as well. Uh, and to that end, if you follow East Side Community Network, on Instagram and Facebook, you'll see some videos of some millennial influencers talking about the East Side and ECN. And you have Detroit Hives on there, Detroit's chief storyteller, Eric Thomas debuted today and more. So stay tuned with that. Uh, shout out to Donna, 
my co-host for manning the ship all by herself last week while I vacation. I told her like, I want a real vacation. I'm not reading news. I don't want to record. I don't want to do anything. Um, Donna and I will also be making an appearance at the Detroit Podcast Festival alongside Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and former gubernatorial candidate Abdul El Sayed on October the 18th at 6 p.m. We will uh, give you the details of that in the description of the podcast. I will be making an appearance at the Georgia Walks Summit happening on October 23rd at 11 a.m. You want to register for uh, that session. Also, shout out to uh, Bryce Detroit and his signage, Hood Clothes to Gentrifiers. Uh, what an amazing campaign. <laughs> Somebody actually stole the signage. Um, and so he's figuring out what to do and is asking for support. So uh, hit up Bryce Detroit on Facebook or Instagram, literally Bryce Detroit, and you can figure out how to support uh, his messaging campaign. Um, also, while we're talking about the North End, Rashawn Foster in the North End for her community missionary status and her upcoming panel at Michigan Community Development Association annual fall conference. I think this is her first panel. She reached out to me today and was super excited, and I wanted to encourage her um, on the air. And DFC laid the groundwork for their equity work today. They released a framework by which they'll be working to achieve economic equity in the city. So shout out to Anika Goss Foster and our friend who says that um, Authentically Detroit is required listening, Nicole Brown. We love you, sister. Tana, uh, Tawana, you have shout outs? Yeah, I'll just say, you know, look out for more from Green Chair is Not Green Lights campaign. And you can actually follow Green Chairs Not Green Lights at greenchairsnotgreenlights.org. Um, get you a t-shirt, support the campaign, and, you know, start putting some chairs out in, in on, on the front porches and start looking out for each other, y'all. I know that's right. Um, Go ahead. Um, I'm also going to be um, um, on the closing plenary for the Detroit Vibrant Communities um, Conference on Friday at 9.45 a.m talking about Perhaps poverty in Michigan and what we can do to address it. I've got all the solutions. I'm just joking. I have some <laughs> ideas. So hopefully they will be heard. You know, I mean, when we start talking about changing things, we have to talk about just more than changing laws or changing programs. We need to talk about changing systems and really challenging our systems to be aligned with justice. So I'm excited about that panel and really trying to push the envelope. Go ahead. Juana, you have been amazing as usual. Great talking to you and thank you for your commitment and your scholarship because um, just even looking at your background, I can tell you read a whole lot and you have all the <laughs> referencing. All the books and you named <laughs> right back here. <laughs> so yeah, we need to talk more off. We need a book club. I need someone to be able to roll these things off with. I'm reading them and I'm trying to talk and it's like, wow, I'm all by myself. So I'm gonna have to call you one day and just yeah, some ideas you. Um, thank you for joining us. I know you're a very busy um, and engaged person in this community. And thank you, Orlando, for coming back. to our <laughs> Wait, It was hard alone. <laughs> oh, it's our pleasure. This is our baby. Thank you for listening, everybody. We want you to catch the wave.